Coming up on the Life is a Festival podcast. Integration, which has become a very popular concept in the ayahuasca world, uh, appropriately, um, so I don't want to make light of it, um, is key to the ayahuasca work and any plant ceremony or psychedelic work, right? If you can't integrate what it is you're gaining in ceremony, then you're just tripping. And I've often said there's a place for that, you know, but in ceremony, that's not the intention, right? You're actually there to really uh, either do some really deep, you know, um, self-inquiry, you know, exploration into the psyche, or like most people are doing, actually coming to heal from things specific, right? So ayahuasca is going to give you understanding, glimpses, and it might even give you direction and guidance. But unless you find a way to integrate that into your life, nothing really happens. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is Eamon Armstrong, your host of the Life is a Festival podcast. Join me for a series of conversations exploring our collective wisdom to inspire a bold courage for life. Welcome to Life is a Festival. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to a man I deeply admire about one of my favorite topics, shamanic ceremony. Tony Moss is a community leader, a musician, and an ayahuasca advocate. 30 years ago, Tony was heavily involved in activism, trying to change the world through protesting war and inequality. Today, he is a leading proponent of the legalization and responsible use of ayahuasca and other plant medicines for healing individuals and the world. Tony's mother, Rejoice Moss, was part of the 1960s Gospel Act, the Stovall Sisters, and he grew up in a musical household. His medicine music is informed by his R&B roots, a love of musical theater, and Ikaros, traditional ayahuasca songs that guide healing ceremonies. On the podcast, we discuss his personal journey to plant medicine and how ayahuasca has helped him to heal his ancestral lineage. We talk about his specific strategies to facilitate ceremony and build community, as well as how to integrate psychedelic experiences. We also discuss the racial divide in ayahuasca accessibility. In 2012, Tony founded I Am Life, a nonprofit organization that promotes interconnectivity through modern and indigenous wisdom. He is part of the musical collective Bird Tribe, which has just released its debut album, Birds in Paradise. Tony's gospel-inspired hymn, Grateful, is my favorite medicine song, and it's featured in its entirety at the end of the podcast. Eventually, there is no difference between your life and ceremony. Your life becomes a ceremony, and the secret is gratitude. So, wow, I haven't seen you in years. The last time I saw you was... Remember we ran into each other, was it a festival? Yeah, but I, but that's still kind of years. That was uh, lightning in a bottle two years ago was the last time I saw you in 2017. Really? Wow. I could have sworn like I ran into you at some unexpected event, but you do remember. I do remember, because we didn't actually, we were kind of in passing, right? We didn't actually like hang out. 
Well, the last time I remember seeing you was um, you were doing a performance and I came to hang out and listen and then I gave you a quick hello afterwards, but there were a lot of people who wanted to come up and connect and... I guess that was it. Because I, I do remember the last time I saw you that there was some reason we didn't actually like hang out. And that must have been it. Yeah. Um, but I miss you. I feel like you had a you, you had an interesting impact uh, when we met in 2015. And when I've been thinking about this podcast, uh, I've, there's some, I really wanted to have you on the podcast and there's some things I wanted to discuss with you. And, um, I really wanted to do it in person, obviously, but, uh, you have this great event coming up on Sunday and I just figured let's just do it now and we can promote gratitude. I love that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) At the moment, that's kind of, yeah, my life has been around uh, the last month promoting gratitude. (laughs) Yeah, through this project. Well, and I don't know if you remember this, but um, when we first met, I we talked about gratitude, and you you told me that you have. I asked you about your spiritual tradition, your like what your lineage was, what you were about, and you were like, "Oh, I have I have a spiritual tradition. It's gratitude." Ah, <laughs> uh, that's great. that's funny i don't remember that but it sounds so likely that i'm sure it's true (laughs) that's how uh that's how i live my life is i'm just like well it sounds like me i don't really remember but pretty much so uh, let me ask you out the gate um what would be a home run podcast for you what kind of podcast would make you feel like, yes, this is what I, this is how I want to be represented. This is what I want people to learn from me. Oh, it's interesting. Um, well, you know, it, a, a general response to a lot of questions I get from people um, around the nature of my work and what I'm about and all of that, um, typically, what I say is, you know, what I'm really dedicated to at this point in my life is the evolution of human consciousness in general, right? And when I look at and have looked, you know, sincerely like a lot of people at the state of the world and what's happening, um, what I always kind of automatically do or have been trained to do is always take each issue to its core, like the root cause, right? It's from there that you can kind of come up with solutions or understanding. And many years ago when I was in kind of a depression, um, I was kind of looking at the state of the world and trying to understand, you know, what was happening. And uh, in that kind of inquiry and medication, meditation, what came to me was that the root cause of most of the world's problems, which I've been quoted, you know, many times as saying, is a lack of connection, you know, um, a, a human lack of connection to the world, you know, to the cosmos, to each other. And in modern life, what seems to be plaguing most people, particularly young people, is this sense of um, emptiness. And I think because of the ubiquitous nature of social media, there's always a sense that other people are living a bigger or better or more fulfilling life than you are, right? And the antidote to to that, and most of the problems that people have shared with me over the years, particularly through the medicine work that I've done, um, is gratitude. You know, I always say, you know, just pausing and stopping and taking stock of what there is to be grateful for already, you know? Um, 
because when you really practice that, you know, it, I mean, really take it to its core, you know, you'll be grateful that you have shelter, you know, grateful that you have running water, grateful that you have friends, you know, um, grateful that, you know, it can be like, I'm grateful that I live in the United States as opposed to Syria, <laughs> right, at the moment. Um, yeah, so, you know, a, a slam dunk awesome podcast would really probably focus on that, you know. The, the simple, basic things that most people are after and looking for to have a satisfying life um, and what that would look like in practice, uh, not just theory, you know. And, um, yeah, I think it would just be getting present to how freaking amazing it is to be alive, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, you have given me the gift of gratitude in my knowing of you and when I sat with you in ceremony um, and you sang the song Grateful, which we're going to talk about today and the audience is going to get to listen to at the end of this podcast, um, that blew me away because it was, I mean, this was like gospel Icaros. This was like the whole ceremony was singing it and I was like, oh my God, this is big. And I've since learned it and um, I sing it and actually my dear friend David Cologne and I will sing like harmonies with each other and it's a song, it's a song that stayed with me for real. Like there's a lot of things that I've seen or witnessed in ceremony or in experiences similar to that, that there are peaks and it's wow and I've learned and then I integrate and then they kind of fall away as memories that aren't quite as present. But that song, like I was listening to the new version of it um, in preparation for this interview and I was just like, oh, and it kind of bringing back memories of me singing it in a ceremony, you know, but you're not even around. And um, so this idea of gratitude, ooh, and this idea, not just of gratitude, but also something that I want to talk about is you, your life experience, your relationship to music, the fact that that, to me, that song is, just, that is a gospel song. Like, it just is. It's, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it's interesting because when, so that song is such an interesting history. And really briefly, I originally kind of received slash conceived the song because a, uh, a really good friend in our community, uh, whose name was David Brahm, um, after many, many years of struggling with addiction, he finally passed away, right? And I was kind of thinking about, you know, like a lot of people do, like, what would I say at a memorial service or a funeral, you know? Um, and none of that ended up happening. But I was thinking about this idea of, you know, how wonderful it is to have lived it all, you know? And mm. um, the idea of that just kind of started expanding. And as Grateful started to formulate, I realized it wasn't so much a song about being at the end of one's life. It was actually a song and a you know, medicine music, an Ikaro to some degree, that was more about how beautiful it is to be alive. And that when bad things happen, you know, particularly you know, the loss of uh, a relationship, you know, um, or someone dies that you're close to, there is definitely an appropriate period, obviously, of grieving and mourning. But what you ultimately come to, um, hopefully, is, and how amazing it was to have loved it all, you know? Yeah, which, of course, is to have lived it all. Yeah, so that's kind of the roots of the song. The gospel thing is interesting you bring up because, um, you know, I have a gospel background. Um, my mother was um, part of the Stovall sisters, and they were a 
not only they were under contract with Warner Brothers and recorded one album with them, it was the first kind of gospel crossover into funk soul. Um, and it's now considered like a, a classic. It's like one of the most collectible albums. Yeah. So I what, grew what up. What year was that? Uh, I believe that album premiered in 1970. Yeah. And um, so growing up, gospel music is what I heard most of. However, my mom was a backup singer. Right. So she was under contract with Warner Brothers again, and they traveled around and sang behind she and her sisters. Um, some of the greatest like R&B acts of the time. So I was hearing all kinds of influences in music. And then uh, later actually uh, went into uh, musical theater professionally. So I had this interesting, like the hippies that she was singing back up for Norman Greenbaum, Spirit in the Sky, this gospel roots, and then this passion for musical theater. So ironically and interestingly enough, uh, Grateful actually combined all three of them. You know, my love for medicine music, the kind of gospel R&B influence, you know, and the, the kind of storytelling and melodic structure of musical theater music is definitely also a play in that song. Um, you might not know this, but I was a musical theater kid growing no, up. No, I didn't know and, that. Oh, yeah. Super into musical theater. That's actually how I have the pipes to sing the belting, like, beautiful, robust part. I was a classically trained baritone, and I was in Greece and Guys and Dolls, and um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in fact, to to me, a festival is kind of like a musical. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so is ceremony in a lot of ways. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah. Um, tying all those together, you know, uh, when I had kind of realized at some point, probably around the age of 30, that I was really interested in ceremony and community ceremony, like the, the value and, and necessity, actually, of communities getting together and having some type of ceremony, you know, whether it was rite of passage ceremony, celebration of life ceremony, whatever it was. And uh, so I started studying ceremony and found out that theater actually has its roots in ceremony. It's where theater comes from. You know, um, indigenous people, yeah, and probably later, you know, uh, probably I think particularly around the Greco-Roman period, um, a really good ceremony uh, has aspects of theater in it, right? And that you're telling a story and that you're wanting to support the story with some kind of visuals and you're supporting the story that you're telling with music. And so theater began actually out of ceremony. So most really good ceremonies that people go to, at, at least the, the more contemporary ones, always have a, a good element of theater involved. Yeah. Well, I want to continue the trajectory of your life, but for the sake of just locating audience members who might not be familiar with ceremony and the way we're discussing it, um, this is the first podcast where we're going to go deep on ayahuasca um, and ceremony and what that means um, for your and my lives and what it means generally. And so just to locate us, can you tell me a little bit about what ceremony means in this modern context and, and about ayahuasca as a plant in ceremony and cer community ceremonies generally? Yeah. So in general, with indigenous cultures, um, and this is a very general statement, it was in ceremony where the community, particularly the elders, would pass on and share the cosmology uh, of the particular culture. It's also where they would share their values and spiritual truths, right? Um, they were also used to mark, as you know, things like harvest and uh, rites of passage, which are very important, you know, um, marking the different stages of life, particularly young people, um, 
you know, moving into adulthood. So ceremonies played a really critical role um, in the foundation of the community, right? A lot of people have said, and I wholeheartedly agree over the years that part of the problem with modern culture, Western culture in particular, is that we don't have significant authentic rites of passages, right? Um, yeah, young people in this, a rite of passage in the United States and probably all over the Western world looks like you've graduated high school, right? And now you have a permission to uh, get drunk and to drive a car. And unfortunately at the same time, <laughs> often, right? Um, highlighting this idea that they're relatively empty, right? Um, also a place where a community comes together and holds counsel, you know, where they um, talk about the issues that are facing a particular community. Um, so there's ceremonies for rites of passage, ceremonies for grieving, ceremonies for conflict resolution, and of course there's ceremonies for spiritual development and devotion, right? So the significance and role of ceremony in modern culture is what I just mentioned, that it's largely absent, but it's really important. And as I said earlier, you know, this idea and feeling of connection, you know, as you know, you know, Every other person I meet is on some kind of antidepressant or anxiety, you know, medication. And in talking to those people over the years, I've been working now with ayahuasca. I'm, I'm entering the 27th year. Um, most people that are suffering from depression and anxiety, when they really kind of explore it and talk to me about it in depth, it typically comes from some of the things we've talked about, uh, a lack of authentic connection with themselves, a lack of authentic connection with the cosmos, um, meaning kind of like knowing their place in it all, you know, what is my life's purpose? Um, a lot of that is alleviated when you're in some form of kind of relatively regular ceremony experience, right? Those questions, you know, life's big questions, uh, who am I, where did I come from? What's my role in the whole thing? Yeah, um, yeah, what's my purpose? A lot of that gets answered in ceremony. So when you don't have any access to that, you end up with a lot of people feeling relatively unconnected and fairly empty. You know, there's an interesting piece about the uh, depression and anxiety that um, I've noticed is that, I, so ayahuasca is uh, the combination of two plants. There's the ayahuasca vine, and then there's a plant that contains DMT. Um, and the ayahuasca vine is uh, contains an MAO an MAO inhibitor. Correct. So it, so it actually, it's interesting. It directly kind of relates to the experience of depression because it floods your brain with serotonin. And I found it so interesting that in order to do an ayahuasca ceremony, you actually have to go off antidepressants because otherwise you're at a risk of serotonin sickness. Exactly. And I just think that it's, it's just very interesting that, that depression and anxiety disconnect. Um, we're trying to solve these with, in my experience, having taken them, these kind of masking medicines of SSRIs, where we pay regular monthly money to have our symptoms somewhat dampened, also, in my case, my sexual libido dampened, um, but not able to really move through whatever trauma is holding that in place. And then ayahuasca, you actually have to go off antidepressants to take it at all. And I just think that's such an interesting, that it's interesting that it is that way. It's a beautiful irony, you know, that uh, in order to even participate in an ayahuasca ceremony, you actually have to go off the medications that are numbing you right, from the healing process, right? So it, it's quite beautiful, <laughs> yeah. And so you're entering your 27th year of working with this medicine, and um, there's something that you said to me when we first met. Um, which I it's just stayed with me, and I've actually wanted to ask you about this since. So 
outside of the podcast, I just wanted to have a conversation with you about it. You told me that you were an activist and that you discovered ayahuasca and that holding ceremony and helping healing through ayahuasca supplanted your activism and you actually found it to be a superior tool for changing the world than activism. Now, correct me if I'm wrong in representing this because it's been a couple of years since I, since you said this to me, but um, I'm fascinated to hear about, first of all, how activism played out in your life and how you transitioned to um, to facilitating and supporting ceremony. Yeah, so really briefly, I was um, a part of a community of people that were doing a lot of um, activism, everything from very passive activism to kind of aggressive you know, um, I'll just say that aggressive activism. And, um, so one day we were at, it was the beginning of the Iraqi war and we were at a March downtown LA and they had just started this new thing, which has now become ubiquitous where, you know, you one kind of had to get permission to March. Right. So we had permission. And because of that, the police had kind of lined the entire route of the march that we had gotten approved uh, you know, to follow. And what I realized was like, oh, wow, what they've actually done is only people that know that we're marching and are already interested in what we're talking about are viewing this march. So it was relatively ineffective. The one place we got to on that march um, that made a difference was we got to a freeway um, overpass. So we're crossing over the, the freeway. And all of a sudden, people are holding up their signs, you know, on the freeway overpass. And now the cars are going by and beeping like support. And that's, of course, when the police came along and wanted to shut it down. So I had this realization like, wow, I'm, this is not effective. You know, they've even found a way to circumvent the power of protest. So that sent me into kind of this depression that I mentioned to earlier, where I was driving down the street one day and I stopped at a stop sign. And literally, my hand flew up. And kind of involuntarily, I spontaneously said, I am life, right? And I intellectually got that I am life, of course, you know, but I was looking up at the hills and, you know, the clouds, and I realized, like, there was no separation between me and everything else that I was seeing, including the traffic, you know, uh, ahead of me. And um, I just had this realization of what I shared earlier, that at the core of these problems is actually disconnect. And although protests and other forms of activism are extremely important. They keep the issues uh, alive. They keep people in the conversation. They make people aware. At the same time, the front lines of activism is actually evolving consciousness, right? And I just started working with ayahuasca um, on a more regular basis. And I thought, you know, this is actually where I want my form of activism to be. You know, it's in actually sensitizing people to what's going on in the world, bringing people out of depression, anxiety, and apathy, you know, and actually evolving consciousness and empathy, uh, compassion, to a degree where um, it, it transcends activism in the traditional sense, you know, and that, as you know from your own experience, once you drink ayahuasca, at least for most people, one of the things that happens is you feel this connection to the planet, this connection to the cosmos, right? And it suddenly becomes alive, right? And you realize that not only is it alive, but it's in really tangible ways, it's you, right? Yeah, and that experience was happening so often and so many people were being turned on to some form of activism because they were participating in ayahuasca ceremonies. I thought, well, for me, this is now the front lines, and that's where I'm going to focus my work. So I've always said, although ayahuasca, 
quote unquote heals people, um, gives you a sense of transcendence and, you know, enlightenment, um, and it's quote unquote spiritual work. For me, I've always seen it actually as a form of activism. Wow. Um, how did you first be, how did you first become turned on to ayahuasca? Where were you at in your life when you first approached this medicine? Um, what were you working on at that time? How did it, how did it help you personally transform when it first came into your life? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, I was one of those people that had done no other psychedelics prior to my ayahuasca experience. How old were you? Uh, 30. And, um, the interesting thing about that is, so I was running with a, a couple of partners of mine, um, a all organic uh, coffee house in Long Beach called Living Planet. And at the time, it was the only all organic coffee house that I was aware of, at least in Southern California. Um, so because of that, it grew in this really beautiful alternative crowd of people. And um, so I was getting exposed to all kinds of new ideas and spiritual concepts. And so I was in this really just very open um, exploratory phase of my life. And one day this uh, good friend of mine came in and uh, he said, Hey, there's going to be an ayahuasca ceremony this weekend. Would you guys like to go? And uh, without even hesitating, I was like, uh, yeah, I had no idea what it was. I was like, I what? like a lot of people. And at this time, you know, we really weren't on the internet. I mean, the internet had, was starting, but it's not like something that I was on regularly. So I, it, did, it wouldn't even have dawned on me to like Google ayahuasca and see what the hell it is, right? Instead, he said to me like, um, he said, oh, it's like that movie Emerald Forest. And I had seen this film and loved it. So I had this, you know, crazy romanticized idea that we were going to be like in a forest and I was going to find my spirit animal, you know, and I would be connecting in that way. So um, long story short, we just adventurously went. And uh, I kind of didn't know that it was a psychoactive tea. Um, I didn't know that it was going to be actually in a structured ceremony. It turns out it was actually the Santo Daime, which is a Judeo-Christian uh, religion, ayahuasca church out of Brazil. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we drank, nothing happened. You know, in fact, I was kind of ridiculing everybody else in my head, thinking like, oh, these poor people, they're all desperate to have an experience. Nothing's really happening. <laughs> and then uh, one of the guardians, they're called, came over and said, hey, we're drinking the second round. Do you want to drink? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, and sometime within that first 10 or 15 minutes after drinking what they call the second cup, second round, just out of exasperation with the whole experience, I crossed my arms, you know, and leaned over and put my head kind of between my legs and my head exploded into vision and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, head exploding into vision. It's such a sweeping cosmic narrative, you know, I feel like with, with ayahuasca, there's a, it, you just get taken along for a, a ride of beautiful visions and... Or terrifying. And terrifying. Well, I, I find that maybe it's the MAO inhibitor that's part of it, but I always feel like someone's kind of holding my hand. Like I'm, I'm kind of, I know I'm safe even when it's really scary or I'm puking my guts out. Yeah, a lot of that certainly has to do with the ceremony and how it's structured and people are prepared, like the orientation and all of that. However, one of the things that's really interesting about ayahuasca is that uh, universally, like cross-culturally, when people drink ayahuasca, it is absolutely fascinating and phenomenal how they have very similar visionary experiences. And one of the most common uh, reported experiences is that there is a intelligent, usually feminine presence that no matter what you're going through seems to have your back right? and guiding you along, even in 
some of the terrifying shadow things that come up, you know, when you're needing to face yourself or just a shadow of humanity. Yeah. You've spoken publicly about um, how you can heal an ancestral lineage through ayahuasca. And I've, and I've heard this discussed before, and I've had some experiences with it, um, not as profound as the story that I know that you have. Um, but I'd love to hear about this idea of healing ancestral lineage through ayahuasca and your own experience with that. Yeah, it's interesting. So first of all, it's fascinating. So much of what the kudenderos, kudenderos, uh, what we're calling shamans, have shared and very simple language about what ayahuasca is doing. Research year after year is now proving to be true in Western understandable language. So one of them is this idea of ancestral healing. So as most people now are familiar with this new research that is now proving pretty unequivocally that all of us carry within our DNA the uh, traumas and suffering of our ancestors, right? Whatever they face, we're carrying it. So it's fascinating that you go into an ayahuasca ceremony and one of the most common experiences is that you suddenly find yourself in dialogue or relationship with ancestors. And you start to, a lot of people make this connection that whatever it is you're going through in your life, that think your problem, that it is, you know, that, that you're there to heal, you realize it's actually connected to your ancestors, right? Things that they went through. It might be as simple as like, you know, a anxiety, uh, a tendency towards depression, a tendency towards, a tendency towards certain types of ailments. Um, so what happens in ceremony is that the ancestors for a lot of people in one way or the other, either visually or through communication or both show up and you start to make these connections and see that a lot of your programming and conditioning um, is actually related to things that quote unquote aren't yours meaning they didn't necessarily happen in this lifetime. You're just kind of carrying it. So people heal that. And one of the things I've often said since then is that you can heal your ancestral lineage forwards and backwards. And what I mean by that is when you, all of us are carrying around, let's say the shit and the baggage, right? From our ancestors from this lifetime or, or others. When you heal that within yourself, right? Let's just say those bad habits uh, and bad, let's say, karmic tendencies, they don't go forward, right? So you're no longer passing that on to people that you meet, your own family, let's say your children or offspring, right? So you can, in that sense, you're actually sparing, you know, future generations, right? So that's why I say you can actually heal your ancestral lineage backwards and forwards. As a Native American say, seven generations, you know, just what that concept means. Yeah, so for myself, you know, I've told this story many times. So the both, the briefest version of the story is that I was out in the desert doing an all-men ceremony. My father, who had passed away five years earlier, shows up in the ceremony, at clear and, you know, stark as day, and proceeds to want to have a conversation with me. So I take a walk, and as we're walking, his father and my mother's father appear. So now I'm walking with my father and two grandfathers. And they basically said, we, we brought you here because we wanted to have a conversation with you and apologize for any of the pain and suffering that we caused you. And as they were speaking, I moved into this visionary state and I saw what looked like to me um, African people running through fields being chased by other Africans or Europeans, you know, eventually herded onto slave ships brought to this country. This is all like one of those montage flashbacks in a movie. And, um, looking at their pain and suffering, being beaten, and then shown how that behavior 
and what they endured became part of the way that they related to each other and to their children. So this happened probably in like, you know, less than a minute. And then I saw clearly like, oh my gosh, my father and grandfathers treated me the way they did because they literally didn't know any better, right? And this is the way they were treated and it just seemed like the way that you do things. So in that, I was able to uh, have this really deep sense of forgiveness. And I also realized that a lot of insecurities that I was carrying, including the inability at the time to even uh, feel comfortable uh, intimately with other people and look them in the eye in conversation was actually all related to that. And it was within a few months of that ceremony, all of that vanished, right? And I had this experience of feeling like for the first time in my life that I was actually standing on the planet in my own body authentically as myself without this whole story behind me controlling my behavior, basically. You said that in a couple of months that cleared up, which makes me think about this piece about integration um, with ceremony. So you had these visions, and I'm curious what happened in those next couple of months, because it sounds like there was a, it, it doesn't seem like you had the experience and then suddenly everything changed. So you must have done something in your life to incorporate what you saw. Is that the case? Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because um, for a bunch of reasons, um, integration, which has become a very popular concept in the ayahuasca world uh, appropriately. um, So I don't want to make light of it um, is key to the ayahuasca work and any plant ceremony or psychedelic work, right? If you can't integrate what it is you're gaining in ceremony, then you're just tripping. And I've often said there's a place for that, you know, but in ceremony, that's not the intention, right? You're actually there to really uh, either do some really deep, you know, um, self-inquiry, you know, exploration into the psyche, or like most people are doing, actually coming to heal from things specific, right? So ayahuasca is going to give you understanding, glimpses, and it might even give you direction and guidance, But unless you find a way to integrate that into your life, nothing really happens, right? You just had a really profound, enlightening experience, and then you go back into default reality and, you know, start all over again. So what that looks like for each person is different. It depends on what it is and what, you know, how your life is being lived. In my case, the recognition that something that big was controlling my behavior and that it was programmed, you know, like, this is kind of my default program running. I was smart enough at the time and had... uh, read enough to know that I had some deep conditioned hardwiring. And I also knew that ayahuasca had this ability to create what they call uh, neurogenesis. You can actually go in basically in layman's terms and kind of rewire yourself. So for me, what that looked like was now that I had an understanding that I had a social anxiety, fear of intimacy brought on by this condition, I was now able to confront it. So it wasn't like it vanished. It meant that every time I was with a person from that point on or in a conversation, I would notice, ah, there it is. There's the anxiety thing. Now I know where it's coming from. Now I'm having trouble um, being intimate, looking at this person in the eye. However, I understand where it's coming from now. So I'm just making a new choice. So it took two or three months to feel like I had actually kind of had a breakthrough. Although the, the initial breakthrough, as people often say, was understanding the origins of the problem. Right? Then I had to put it into practice. Yeah. Well, it seems like by understanding the origins, you're liberated to make a new choice. Because so so often what we're working with here are unexamined patterns, because that's just the way it is. You know, if you grow up and you feel fear associated with love, which it seems like we both have shared some of that, 
then love comes and so does fear, and you don't know that those are different. And I think what's so great about ayahuasca especially, but medicine work generally, is it just kind of, in, in, in really in technicolor, beautiful imagery, it's like, well, actually, it's different. And then you're like, okay, but it's still on you to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, since ayahuasca has become so popular, you know, um, exponentially, a lot of people, and there's a lot more media, um, as I said, when I started, there wasn't, um, a lot of people are watching YouTube videos or excerpts from documentaries, and they come to an ayahuasca ceremony expecting this huge, blown-out, dramatic experience, and they're going to meet their demons and be healed, right? Huge letdown when that doesn't happen, right? As you know, sometimes that happens. More often than not, it's a grueling experience of looking at what we don't want to look at, you know, going through uh, trauma and emotional releases that maybe we haven't up until that point. Um, yeah, and then on the other side of that, there is this opportunity to do what you're talking about, which is to kind of hit the reset button, you know? It's like, um, okay, I'm realizing now that I am hardwired to have love and fear rise simultaneously, right? Or to have intimacy and sexuality be collapsed into the same, you know, experience, whatever it is. Ayahuasca starts to uncollapse those things. You start to see their origin, you see how they're playing out, and you're given this opportunity to start making some new choices, which basically comes down to putting in a new operating system. Uh, so how did you come to facilitate ceremony? Um, what sort of training did you do to get to that space? So initially, um, my introduction to ayahuasca, as I mentioned earlier, was with the Santo Daime Church. And I didn't know that when I went. In fact, it took two or three visits for me to realize, oh, this is actually religion, right? Because I was completely uninterested in that. I was just blown away by the relationship with the medicine. I wasn't paying all that much attention <laughs> to the ceremony structure. And a lot of people can't because the ceremony, you know, the, the experience of the medicine is so powerful. You're just dealing with that. You're not really paying attention. So once I realized it was actually a Judeo-Catholic religion, I wasn't interested in what they call the doctrine, although it was very fascinating and has some beautiful teachings. Um, but I was definitely interested in the results, right? And then within a couple of years, um, there is a now well-known shaman, not at the time, Don Jose Campos, traveling to California. And a friend somehow thought that I would be a good guardian for him, a sitter, and connected me with him. And he said, yes. Yeah. So that was my introduction to shamanism versus um, the Santo Daime Church. And without realizing it, that was my early training, you know, um, being able to sit for him, sit with him and for him um, to learn from him. I started to see these huge potentials, you know, um, for ayahuasca as really kind of a global healing modality, honestly. So I just started to take on the study, you know, I'm condensing really dramatically, but basically the years that followed uh, studying, I've now studied in Peru, Brazil, Ecuador, you know, to some degree, Colombia. Um, yeah, with everything from, you know, Cudendedas, Cudendedos, male and female, uh, what we're calling shamans, uh, extensive study with the Santo Daime Church, at one point was leading one of those churches. Um, yeah, and eventually got uh, in invited and inspired to lead a retreat uh, outside of the United States, and that kind of just changed everything. Uh, at that point, you know, I, I realized like this is actually what I want to do with my life. 
And the interesting thing is not because I wanted to, it was because it was inescapable, right? Um, it, it felt as the years were going on that there was this, in fact, I didn't want to pursue, pursue the medicine. There was a period of time when I'm like, all right, this has been really interesting and I'm done with it. Like I'm actually kind of sick of it. And it would always kind of draw me back in. And once I actually started facilitating, it became really clear, like, wow, I'm being given an opportunity and an invitation, you know, to um, kind of carry on this tradition, evolve it, you know, and make it accessible to uh, an audience of people that might not have access otherwise. And basically around the age of 43 or something, I said yes <laughs> yeah. to the universe. <laughs> There's, there's so many things I want to dive in on, and I want to flag right now the accessibility piece and come back to it. So let's not forget the accessibility piece, because that's something I really want to discuss with you about. But um, one thing I just want to talk about right now is the way that you facilitate. And um, I'm going to tell a brief story, um, which is the I've sat with you once, and I sat with you during uh, a ceremony where one of the participants really took the stage um, I don't know if you recall per- the, the story that I'm about to tell you, but one of the participants really took the stage and her process took over the, the ceremony. And she, and she's, she was, as uh, someone that you'd known, um, a brilliant woman in her first experience, and there was something that was uh, somewhat petulant in her uh, public resistance to her own process. And what I loved, and I've thought about it a lot since then, is that you just chilled for a while, longer than I think I would have chilled, and just allowed it to unfold. And 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 you had people who were supporting you in the ceremony who intervened in certain ways, and you didn't intervene with that. You just chilled. And then at a certain point, you were like, okay, now we're going to move on from this, because I've seen this before, and I, I want to give you your space. But I think at this point, where you didn't use the word, the idea of diminishing returns, but essentially, you were like, very, <laughs> very gently, you're like, okay, well, you know, that was a time. And we're going to move on. And you were very um, assertive. This was what was going to happen. And the woman who had been fighting everyone was just like, oh, okay, I'll sit down now. Um, and and then what you said at the end in the wrap-up was um, this this woman apologized for taking the space. And you said, no, you know, that we all learned in that moment. And, um, and I, you know, I appreciate this. And just the way that you managed that whole experience was quite educational for me, from letting it play out, to knowing when it was time to turn the page, to ultimately validating this person's experience and recognizing that we'd all learn from it. And I just loved it. So I wanted to share it in this podcast. And, and just talk about your facilitating and, and your choices that you make. Here's what I've learned over the years, not only through um, ceremony work, but community work. Because in my own community, I'm considered you know, a community leader, per se. And um, I've also been, just been very fascinated with the whole concept of community and what functional community actually looks like. Right? So in the context of ceremony and the one you're speaking of, and this happens in all of them, what I've learned is that something I share often is everything that comes up in ceremony is part of ceremony, right? So every single thing that happens, whether it's someone running around crazy, you know, or, you know, a light falls and crashes and hits the floor, right? It doesn't matter. It's, it's all part of the experience of ceremony and what can be learned and, and gleaned from it. In the case of something like what you're talking about, and in relationship to this idea that everything is part of ceremony, some people have really authentic um, 
how should I say, uh, dramatic experiences, right? That they're not in control of. Um, it could be anything from like, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs or, you know, trying to escape the room, you know, or externalizing their internal experience unknowing to themselves. And then there are people that have an initial authentic experience that quickly becomes, uh, you use diminishing returns. I always say self-indulgent, right? <laughs> Where the initial thing happens, but then it's like something really dramatic is happening to me and this is my moment, you know. What I've learned is the, it's a cathartic, beneficial experience regardless, not only for the person, but for everybody, right? So what I always train uh, people in that are assisting me in ceremony is you want each thing that comes up to have its moment, right? And then you have to just through an intuition and experience realize when it's kind of peaked, right? And then you want to, not only for the person's safety, but for the safety and comfort of the entire ceremony, it also needs to be brought back to baseline, meaning kind of brought under control to some degree. Um, yeah, and I remember the experience you're talking about and both things were happening. There was definitely this initial um, kind of loss of ego, dramatic experience that was quickly followed by the person's personality showing up, right? And just doing what they do in life. And uh, what I've learned is if you shut that down too soon, not only does it bring a kind of negative energy into the ceremony, right? Um, that someone had to be kind of reprimanded. It also eclipses a person's process, right? So you want to... Uh, it's this fine line, give it the time that it needs, but also shut it down as quickly as possible. And all ceremony leaders know what I'm talking about and have to walk that fine line, right? And then in the end, either in that moment or afterwards, in this case, um, you want to turn it into medicine for the entire room, right? So it looks mm. different each time, right? But bringing it back to the person's attention, making sure the whole room knows that uh, why you did what you did, um, what medicine there was in, in it for everybody, um, in the post-integration kind of conversation about it, usually it will come up. And it turns out, yes, people had all kinds of different beneficial experiences from bearing witness to somebody else's crazy experience. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most dramatic learning moments in a ceremony, typically when that happens. Not only for the person, but how everyone in the room is reacting to it or responding, you know. And particularly, depending on the the person facilitating how they incorporate it into the ceremony is, is crucial. Yeah. So I had, um, I sat with you two nights and I actually had an experience that was similar to this in the, the first night as well, which is that there was uh, a gentleman in this, in the ceremony who didn't, he didn't know or follow the rules. He had like a Metallica t-shirt on and like some cutoff jeans. And he was next to me and he was just mumbling to himself like, and, um, and I hated it. And I hated him because I hated it. And I was like, I'm here to do my deep, important spiritual work and you are fucking ruining it. And I was, I was just sat there mad at him. And by the end of the ceremony, I realized just to your point, oh, that was my ceremony. Like, why am I sitting here? Why am I hating this person who needs this as much as anyone? You know, and how many times is there someone in a community who doesn't know the rules, who feels like an outsider, and then everyone is kind of like, ooh, we don't like that person. But that person 
has as much to teach. And um, I kind of think about it as the goblin in the ceremony. That's my like title is the person who comes in to like, be like me, nee, 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 nee. And I, attri- I, I applied it to my life directly afterwards because I was on a flight and there was a baby crying. And I initially braced myself and I was like, ah, that baby. And then I was like, wait a minute. Exactly. Wait, that baby is having its experience. It's part of my experience. And, and instead of like uh, bracing myself like, oh, I wish this wasn't here. I sent my love to the baby. And the cool result of that was A, I sent some love to a baby, which is probably a good idea to do. But also like the baby didn't bug me as much because I was able to cultivate empathy. And, um, and that's another experience that's like letting the ceremony really reveal to you, even if it's not on your terms, even if you thought you were going to get fireworks and instead you get a goblin mur- murmuring in the corner. Yeah, you nailed it. That, that was such a perfect example. You know, like you're on the airplane and you start, you know, you, it turns out the, the crying baby's behind you. And this whole thought process starts like, why is a fucking baby sitting behind me? This always happens. I wish she shut that kid up. You know, um, what's wrong with his parent? You know, don't they know this baby's annoying people? Okay, the reality check is the baby's dealing with pressure from the plane taking off and landing. You know, literally, of course, can't help itself. Of course, it's crying. And we're all part of a community. Communities raise children. It's like, guess what? Babies are just what is. And the baby crying out of discomfort is just what is. You can either choose to be miserable in that moment and make people wrong, right, and uh, have a miserable flight, or just accept like, oh, poor kid, you know, Uh, It's not just her baby, that's a baby, meaning it's next generation of people coming. So the point of it is, you know, it's all in your mindset. And that that moment on the plane becomes ceremony. It becomes medicine. The same exact thing. I often say when you're in ceremony, you're you're in a, you know, um, what's that word? Um, It's like a, it's a cosm, you know, of, of humanity in general. Right. Um, And how you show up in ceremony is how you show up in life very often. Right. So when someone's having a difficult time, you know, I always say to people, if the person next to you is having a really challenging moment, just get up and move. Right. So, right. And uh, let them have their experience. No matter how it is landing on you, you have no idea what that person is going through. Even if they seem to be kind of like acting out and taking up a lot of space, that's still part of the process, right? So it becomes medicine for you and looking at, oh, this is how I react to other people. This is how I respond to adversity. This is how I respond to discomfort, right? It still becomes a beautiful self-inquiry, you know, an opportunity to kind of look at how you show up in the context of other people or in this conversation in the context of ceremony. And expanding on the topic of your podcast it's what I love about festivals, right? Because you are in a little mini mm-hmm. culture and society. And as people often realize, whether it's a intentional transformational festival or just a big festival, they're almost always ceremonies, right? You're looking at how you deal with the people camping next to you, how you interact with, you know, vendors, um, how you interact with, um, you know, wanting to be upbeat and happy at every moment of the festival, be blissful. As you know, those are like the peak moments. Most of it is just dealing with all the <laughs> comfort of the festival. Right? So, yeah, this whole idea of life as a festival, I also say life as a ceremony. There's the same. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that, too, because I was going to try to weave that in at some point, that life is a ceremony. I, I mean, I feel like I've actually came into ceremony in 2015 and I've started, I like push my festivals in the direction of ceremony. They're like little mini heroes journeys for me where 
in the beginning, I got something to puke out, and usually it's my like lonely. It's usually like loneliness and disconnect, and wanting to solve that through re- sexual intimacy, which I think a lot of people do at festivals. And th- but or then, try to. yeah, but well, and, and and if you're out, you know, to try to connect intimately because you feel lonely, that is just a total prophylactic to connecting. Um, that's people are just like, no, I don't want that. Um, and then I kind of uh, then I like purge out the experience of. Um, uh, I, I, I like purge that holding and then I open up and then the connection comes to me. And to me, that, that arc of experience reminds me a lot of, um, of ceremony. And my favorite part of ceremony, by the way, while we're talking about the arc of ceremony is I usually break up my, my ceremonies usually go in about two, about three parts. So the first part is resistance, puking, getting through it. The second part is Eamon working on Eamon because Eamon is such a complex thing that needs to be worked on. And then the third part is like, that's all gone. And I just kind of sit there and I think about nice things I want to do for people. <laughs> and, and that's my favorite part. Like I had a ceremony once where I had an invitation to write a letter of gratitude to my 98-year-old grandmother um, because she paid for my education. And, to, and, and in the ceremony, it was very clearly, it wasn't coming from me, it was someone else that was like, you know, she would really probably like to hear what that investment meant and that she paid for your education. You got to do some really cool things. Why don't you just write down all the amazing things that happened in your life That's great. And, <laughs> and send that to your grandmother? And that to me is like core ceremony insight. It's, you know, there's the deep painful work, which is important, but then there's also the like, I should have lunch with that person and check in and see how they're doing. And like, I wonder about how that person's doing. And I find that to be some of the best of those experiences. Absolutely. It's again, it's, it's kind of the integration process of like how, what you glimpse and learn in ceremony can translate into your life. I, I often say to people that, you know, eventually people that do ceremony on a regular basis and ironically people that go to festivals on a regular basis, eventually there's no difference between ceremony and life. Your life becomes ceremony. And what I, the way that translates into festival is like, Burning Man is just such a great example. I've had many people that have gone initially um, just to kind of like check out the world's biggest party, you know, and to go crazy. And in that, what they realize is, oh my gosh, you know, you're actually kind of looking for those peak happy moments because most of the time you're actually still dealing with your shit, right? Dealing with how you're showing up. You know, here you are with 50,000 people having an amazing time, but yet you're feeling alone or you're feeling depressed right? Disconnected, not realizing that most of the people around you are feeling the same way, right? Um, And then, like you said, the same arc happens where you realize, okay, now I'm just working on me. Then some peak experience happens where, whoa, actually this this festival is amazing. I'm having a really good time. What happens the next year or after the festival? You realize, actually, I want to be one of the people offering something amazing. I want to take art. I want to offer food, right? I want to bring gifts to give away, um, same thing happens with the ceremony, like as you were just mentioning. You find yourself on the other side of your personal shit, right? realizing that you really just want to participate and bring into your life the same awesome experience you had of being in community at a festival or a ceremony. Well, and it's to your point about connection. You know, I think we're longing for connection to come to us. And then when we put down our shit, we realize that connection comes from us as well. And then... Yeah, and then that's how we can really play it out. Yeah, and that connection is just, you know, ubiquitous. Like, one of the things I heard very early on uh, from some spiritual teacher, I don't remember, was this concept of um, 
love is what's already present, right? So people that are looking for love in their life, wanting to experience love, you know, unconditional love, at some point you realize love is actually the foundation of all being. It's what's already present. Usually the issue is what's between me and the love. So same for connection, you know, the, you're already connected to every person at the festival or the ceremony, right? The beautiful moment is when suddenly you realize it, like viscerally, like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I don't need to actually do anything, but allow myself to be connected, okay? And the active part of that is, you know, be the person at the post office that says hello to people, that doesn't go postal, you know? Be the person at a, in some group of strange people that actually walks up and says, hello, my name is Amen. Um, yeah, this is what I do. What are you about? You know, I love what you're wearing. Tell me your story. You know, people are so in the West and yeah, I live in California. So I have to say specifically in Los Angeles, um, there's this common experience we all have of someone saying as a, a general greeting, Hey, how's it going? Right. Not expecting you or really wanting you to respond to that. Right. You want to trip somebody out, answer the question, you know, it's like, hey, how's it going? Well, actually, you know, this morning I got up and like most people are impatient. With that. <laughs> um, you know, tying that together, I was sure you the experience I once had at Burning Man. You know, I was out um, in the desert kind of looking for my friends, not having a bad time, but also feeling kind of like, oh, my posse, my community, they're gone. And then classic magic of Burning Man, this little golf cart all done up in lights, it's kind of headed towards me, broadcasting some music. And literally as it passes, there's this woman's voice over the music being played. I don't know who she was, but um, as it's passing, I hear her say, literally, each of us has the gift of giving another person a sense of worthiness. Like, use this gift and you can change the world. Uh, And in that moment, I thought, I'm so busy worried about connecting with other people. I'm not paying attention to the people that are around me, right? Yeah, and it completely flipped my experience, right? I became the person that was engaging. I became the person that was connecting. And wouldn't you know, this guy comes up to me who was clearly an alcoholic. He was in a terrible way. He was like talking nonstop, you know, needed my attention. And I remember what she had just said. It's like, oh, I want to give this guy a sense of worthiness. It completely changed his night, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that he actually felt heard. You know, I wasn't uh, trying to get away from him. Um, You know, there were some boundaries, obviously. But I basically um, made sure that he felt connected and heard and worthy of my attention. Yeah, and by the time we parted, probably at 40 minutes later, he was in a completely different mindset. So I got to put right away into use the gift that I'd gotten from that little recording. And, and isn't it so interesting the way the ceremony of life um, kind of burps up these experiences to put your new wisdom directly into practice? And it's a lot about just awareness. Yeah, it's that thing about setting intentions in ceremony, as you know, like now it's ubiquitous in most ayahuasca ceremonies that you go to, that the whole thing will start with uh, everyone getting to share whatever their intention is for being there. You know, that has become, in a lot of ways, I often say the most important part of the ceremony, mainly because intentions are met, typically, and also because it gives you a ceremony kind of a a context and structure to unfold in. And very, very oftentimes, like 90%, honestly, the intentions that people set isn't exactly what they get. What ayahuasca actually gives them is all the things that are in the way of that, right? And will confront you right away with an opportunity to actually put into practice the thing it is that you say you're wanting. 
You know, this actually tees up something I wanted to talk to you about, which is the difference between the Western California ayahuasca ceremony with intentions and potential like um, synthesis of healing modalities versus what some people feel to be the traditional uh, Amazonian Shipibo ayahuasca ceremony. And that there's, I've often heard from people who haven't sat in any ceremony at all, that they would never want to do this California woo-woo thing. They want to go to the traditional, that that's somehow more authentic and therefore better. And I'm curious what you feel is the relationship between the the evolution of ayahuasca as it's come out of the jungle and whether whether there's whether it's true that that it's more legitimate to do it there um should we start in the jungle it's a huge huge conversation that we would dedicate a whole another podcast to but in general i will say that's mostly bullshit and here's why um when people say I'm going to do it in the traditional way or, Oh, I'm really only interested in the traditional ayahuasca ceremony. I'm curious to know what tradition they're referring to. You know, they're acting as if there is this one all encompassing traditional ayahuasca ceremony someplace. Right. Um, that's not true. Um, from region to region, tribe to tribe within region, um, there's different ceremonial structure, different ceremony tradition, um, that are pretty dramatic actually. And, um, the other thing is that, Ayahuasca ceremonies, just the whole concept of ayahuasca, as people think about it today, um, evolved with the advent of Western tourism, right? So it was prior to Western people seeking out ayahuasca. Traditionally, it was something that the curandero, the shaman, as we're calling it now, um, you would go to see a shaman if you lived there because you had an ailment, um, physical, emotional, psychological. And the shaman would drink ayahuasca as a tool to kind of diagnose you. And your your prescription, so to speak, um, may or may not include ayahuasca. It could be any number of other plants or regimens. Um, and it might be, yeah, you're going to drink ayahuasca because that's you know where we can heal you. Um, ayahuasca used solely for psycho-spiritual work, which is what most of the world is using it for now. Um, that really happened with the advent of Western people participating in ceremonies. And the curanderos, most of the people in South America, quickly evolved those ceremonies, right, to um, be suitable, you know, and to accommodate Western people, right? So these ceremonies have been evolving from their onset, right, from the initial... As far as we know, ayahuasca, you know, some people say it's thousands of years old. I don't know what they're talking about. And really, it goes back as far as we can actually date I don't doubt that it might have, but ayahuasca, as we think about it, goes back a few hundred years. And one of the questions that came up, um, Stephen Byers answers this beautifully, um, you know, why is it that a lot of tribes that don't speak Quechua as their native language are singing Icaros in Quechua? Well, it turns out at one point they were all in one, during this kind of colonization period, you know, rubber tapping, all that that took place, a lot of these tribes were forced to live in close proximity, right? So that's when ayahuasca started to be shared, and a lot of the songs were kind of adopted and taken into other tribes, other cultures. Um, so it's been evolving from day one, right? So naturally, when ayahuasca came to the West, and now we also have, you know, Santo Daimi, uh, Uniao de Vegetal, the UDV, and um, Barcania, other uses of ayahuasca in a traditional ceremonial use. Those people would say that Santo Daimi is a traditional use of ayahuasca. Well, it's only traditional within the lineage of Santo Daimi. It's not traditional in the world. And it's Christian as well, right? It's based on a 
Judeo-Christian. It's Catholic slash Christian, yeah. And um, so now we have what people are calling neo-shamanism. And I have no problem with that term. It simply means new shaman. New, in the context of what we're talking about, there is a new format and structure of ayahuasca ceremony that is evolved in the West that is really appropriate and accessible. There's that word we want to come back to, accessibility. That's accessible, more accessible to Western people. An example of that would be you're in an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru, and let's say the whole thing is happening with Icaros. You don't know what the hell they're saying, but you're getting these beautiful experiences, right? I was in a ceremony uh, with a elder, uh, Kudendera, and uh, at one point, someone asked if it was okay to sing along with her. And the person who was um, facilitating for her, the ceremony, fired back right away with, well, yeah, but only if they're Icaros, you know, and you can actually, you know, sing in the language. And the translator translated that to uh, the Kudendera, and she said, no, 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 no. She said, I'm singing in my native language because that's the only language I know. She said, if I could sing to in English, I would. <laughs> right? And she basically stressed what a lot of people have shared since then. You don't need to understand the lyrics or the language being sung in a ceremony or spoken, but it sure makes a big impact when you do. Right? When you suddenly hear that the song is about gratitude or about your ancestors or you know, whatever it is, healing uh, bad energy, um, it has a really deep, profound effect, right? That you can actually have the meaning of whatever it is land. That's just an example of how the ceremonies have evolved to meet the particular group of people that are taking ayahuasca, right? So I always say as long as it works, right? And it's authentic in its intention and in the ceremony structure, because there definitely are structures that work and don't work. Um, the rest is, yeah, uh, appropriately evolved and uh, modified, yeah. So I could have gone towards accessibility now, but I'm going to keep the flag in it because this is such a beautiful segue um, into the conversation about Ikaros, which is a big part of what I wanted to discuss with you today. Um, a journalist named Katie Bain, who I appreciate, I love her work, um, I love what she stands for. She, I recently saw that she'd written an article, and the article was titled, How SoCal's Bird Tribe Became the Soundtrack of Ayahuasca Ceremonies. And that struck me because first of all, I was like, wow, that's a, that's just, it, it's so much, it's so much more out in the open now than even, you know, five years ago that these ceremonies are, are happening. And that the music that you and your extremely talented colleagues have been writing are actually seeding out into other circles in different times and places. And, um, and I read that article and, um, and and I've of course I've I've listened to this music for the past few years, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, you've already touched on the idea of an ikros, but like an ikro, like what exactly is an ikro, and how does that relate to what is called what are now called sort of medicine songs, and what does it mean to write a medicine song? Let's talk a little bit about med medicine music. So medicine music is such a beautiful topic. Um, because it can be very specific or very broad in general and kind of abstract. So the first, Icaros. Icaros in ceremony are um, prayers, chants, and basically intentions, right? So an Icaro traditional in, let's say, Quechua, um, the Kudendero or Kudendera is using them to, well, I'll put it this way. When I sat with the Shipibo uh, in Peru, 
one of the things they said is, um, this is roughly translated. Um, he said, um, he said, even though ayahuasca is the true shaman, ayahuasca is actually doing the healing work, the Icaros tell it where to go. It directs the energy, right? So that's a really good understanding mm -hmm. of Icaros, right? That um, through the power of language and intention, because an Icaro can actually come through a flute or through a rattle or through other sounds, through whistles, it, it's a powerful prayer of intention for healing that is coming from the person that's singing it. So you can see already, like, it doesn't matter whether it's in traditional Shipibo uh, language or not, um, or that it's happening in the quote-unquote traditional way. What's important is the authenticity and, uh, well, yeah, the authenticity of the intention itself, right? So what started happening, uh, and now it's happening all over Peru too, of course, all over South America, uh, what were traditionally Icaros started to be accompanied with guitar right? and maybe flute, right? Realizing that now, not only do we now have the power of the intention, the rhythm, the cadence, um, and the various sounds that are uh, moving the energy along or helping the intention to manifest, you now have the power of melody, right? Of harmony, um, which we all, you know, the, the whole other conversation is the power of music and sound vibration on the body. Right, and what that's doing. So the evolution of the Icaros is now what we're calling medicine music. Um, and really it's any song that um, was either conceived as a song to be sung in ceremony or is being used for the purpose of healing in a ceremonial context, right? That's what now we're pretty much calling medicine music. You know, a Brito's Mars song for somebody could be medicine music, right? I, I sing a Jim Henson song um, in ceremony. I, I don't want to live on the moon, which to me is this beautiful childhood adventure. And yeah, it, it, the resonance can have the frequency of healing for sure. Absolutely. Right. Depending on if you're dealing with somebody who, let's say, is dealing with a childhood trauma and that trauma had to do, uh, well, let's say the result of that trauma was that the young person was really robbed of the innocence of being a child. Right. And then suddenly they hear something like a Disney or Jim Henson song in the ceremony, and it suddenly connects them to that childlike part and there's crying and grieving and healing from that, then that song just became medicine music. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying it can be very broad and abstract, or it can be very, very specific. So what happened with the group of musicians that I've been working with is that all of them travel all over and sit in ceremonies in other parts of the world and have been developing these, what we're calling medicine songs. And um, over the years, we started performing those also in live venues, and we just kept getting requests from people to record the songs. So long story short, that eventually became the album that Katie wrote the article about. Um, the album is called Birds in Paradise, and it's very contemporary medicine music. It has elements of Icaros, elements of invocation, which is you know ceremonial structure, how you uh, invoke the intention of the ceremony. Um, it goes into some of the heavier places of ceremony, like, you know, explorations of death being at the end of life, emptiness, but also just pure celebration. Um, one of those tracks is called Pink Dolphins. That's really just celebrating the playful nature of the tribes that live along the, you know, uh, Amazon, you know, um, in South America. So we wanted to basically create an album that would honor the roots of the medicine music that we've been exposed through, the indigenous roots, but also bring into it uh, an element of production and contemporary lyric and instrumentation, you know, 
that would have it uh, really land on a contemporary audience. And it's been <laughs> beautifully successful. <laughs> Yeah, I've I I love your music. I have a, a a musician friend of mine who did not has never sat in ceremony with you, um, and doesn't have any connection to you aside from through me, and learned um, Bird Tribe songs through your sound through sound like SoundCloud recordings and um and plays them and um, Dear Me is that a, is Dear Me one of your songs? Dear Me is a song by Dylan James Byrne, who's part of the, um, so we have a band, right, that initially started making music in ceremony. And because we were being asked to play festivals and things, uh, the actual band became the Love Amp Project, right? So Dylan is a founding member of that band, actually. And Dear Me is one of his ceremony songs. Oh, yeah, that's a great song. Um, yeah, basically, as you know, this is a great example of what we're talking about. If someone is singing to you, uh, people or Quechua, and if what they're saying is, you know, hey, you should forgive yourself, that the answer to your problem right now is forgiving yourself, right? Well, in Dylan's song, the actual lyrics, as you know, were, dear me, I forgive you. People hear that in the right moment in ceremony and lose it because they realize that's their whole issue. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like. I feel like everyone would lose it at that point every time because that's everyone's issue. Dear me, I forgive you. To me, that's like the entire content of every ayahuasca ceremony on some level. You know, it's like forgive, release, move on from the drama because you love yourself enough to to pass through it. You nailed it. That's one of the uh, uh, foundational themes and healings that comes from ceremony because you realize in forgiving yourself, you forgive everybody else you realize you were just doing the best you could with what you were given. Everybody else is too. One of the things I've said oftentimes in ceremony, you know, is forgive yourself, forgive everybody else and get on with the rest of your life. It can be that and simple. Then, and then what's left after all that forgiveness is, is the gratitude, right? I mean, even for, that. even for the difficult, challenging moments, because you realize wow, without those challenges, I would not be who I am. I wouldn't have certain gifts or capacities, levels of compassion, you know, or maybe a particular um, career choice that you made. You, you, you start realizing that there is so much more to be grateful for. And, you know, I've often said, you know, which we can kind of lead into the gratitude project. I, I almost say in every ceremony at some point, if you look closely, the answer to most of your problems is actually gratitude. Right? And the reason is because all of us get so completely self-absorbed, uh, understandably, in our drama, you know, of trying to heal ourselves and work, work everything out. If you just pause and just stop and authentically get grateful, you realize, actually, wow, I've got a lot more than most people, right? And as I often say, most of the world's population would gladly trade places with you and take on your problems, Right. You know, my friend Miranda once said, you know, next time you're looking for something to be grateful for, just take your next breath. And it's true. So we're going to move into the Grateful Project as our close here, and we're going to get to listen to that awesome song. But here's where we come back to the flag, because I want to talk about accessibility. Um, and uh, who is ayahuasca for? Because there's so much, it's trendy, it's in the know, you have to kind of know to be a part of it. How many ayahuasca ceremonies have you done? And um, 
a lot of the ceremonies that uh, I've been uh, grateful to participate in have been overwhelmingly affluent white folks. And, um, and part of, you know, sitting with you and being in a more diverse ceremony was really meaningful for me because it, it did have a different tone to it. And I love that you are, part of your mission is to make it more accessible. And I'd like to hear a little bit about your take on the privilege component to ayahuasca and participating, and then also how you, what you do to make ayahuasca more accessible. It's a really big question, and uh, it actually has many facets, what you just brought up. Um, the first thing you said, now, who is ayahuasca for? You know, I'm definitely on record as saying ayahuasca is not for everybody. And what I mean by that is ayahuasca is for someone who has heard about it, feels called to it, and is ready for it, right? And that clearly is not everybody. Um, people that have just kind of heard about ayahuasca or their friends did it and therefore they want to do it too, typically have a really challenging time in ceremony, right? Um, the very nature of it, the self-reflection, the um, challenge that all human beings have with just looking at their own shit, right? Particularly when it's really deep, like it's deeper than what you thought it was. A lot of people don't do well in that environment and actually flee, right? There's a very, as you know, as joyful and ecstatic as they can be, equally as uh, insufferably painful and uncomfortable as they can be, right? So it takes a certain level of uh, maturity, you know, and understanding about what it is you're saying yes to, to really benefit from an ayahuasca uh, experience. Um, the other issue uh, you brought up is something that I've done talks about, and the talks are usually called Ayahuasca and the Racial Divide. And it is fascinating that once again, we have this profound healing modality and honestly technology given to us by indigenous people that is co-opted predominantly by white people who decide to be shamans and are serving it mostly to white people, right? Here's the thing about that though, who cares? The healing is the healing and white people, quote unquote, and privileged people need it as much if not more than anybody else, right? Um, that said, though, the accessibility issue is a big conversation in the world of ayahuasca. Because of the expense of it and because of the circles that it moves in, a lot of people of color, quote-unquote, disenfranchised people, are not hearing about it. Even if they do, don't know where to go to get it. They aren't in the kind of medicine, Munich, I'm sorry, medicine, um, medicine communities and even maybe festival circuits where it's being talked about enough that you could eventually kind of figure out where to go and participate. So the tragedy and kind of irony of that is that I'll just use a case of African-American people. Most African-American people to some degree or another are dealing with ancestral trauma, you know, uh, that we would all benefit from having healed. This is one of the most powerful modalities for doing that, right? And liberating people as it did for me. So yeah, it saddens me and it's disappointing that more black people haven't heard about it. And if they have, don't have access to it. And I know this is true because they write me all the time. It's like, hey, I saw your interview with Amber Lyon. I'm very interested, you know, um, where can I go? And I legally can't recommend um, any places that aren't legal, right? So. All I can say is, well, you would have to go to South America or where, and of course, most of them can't afford to. So it becomes a real problem for me. You know, um, now that I've kind of made it more accessible to a lot of African-Americans, I wish I could make the experience itself more accessible. The, the honest answer to your question is that I can't. Um, yes, there are ceremonies happening in the United States, obviously, probably every weekend. <clears throat> and yes, there are ceremonies happening 
probably sometimes in the places of the communities where people are making the inquiry. But because I'm a public advocate for ayahuasca, its healing modalities, and all plant medicines, you know, I say all the time, I am an advocate for the legalization and responsible use of all plant medicines. They're part of our heritage, you know, um, much more effective than a lot of pharmaceuticals with way less side effects. Um, but because I'm public about it, I also have to be careful that I'm only ever talking about, you know, what our culture has accepted is uh, legal uses, which at this point is you either go to one of, uh, sorry, you can go to two of the ayahuasca Santo Daime churches, it's legal, or the UDV. You may not be interested in the Deo-Christian aspect of it, or you've got to go to South America and get a recommendation for a good shaman or a, you know, uh, a retreat center of some kind. <sighs> I, it's such a shame that like some of the most advanced and important technology right now has to be so underground. And, um, and then, and then it's like trendy too. It's like, ah, uh, it's like this, it's kind of like in a way it's a little bit like Burning Man in the sense that, um, absolutely. You, you know, you don't, you know about it with an in-group dynamic and because there's such a racial divide in terms of different in and out groups that, you know, Burning Man's issue with race in like, how do we incorporate people without tokenizing people? How do we, you know, where are the leaders for people to model attending Burning Man? Yeah. You know, you bring up a great example. Um, I was at uh, Lucidity a few years back and after the ceremony, um, there was a conversation amongst some of the people on, on the staff there about wanting to make it more racially diverse and how do we do that? And I pointed out to them, I said, look at your advertising for this year's festival. Right. They were all beautiful, happy, sorry, happy hippie or privileged white people predominantly. I said, this is the way people of color move in the world. If you see a poster or several images of a festival and they're all white, the assumption is that it's a thing that white people do and that black people aren't welcome or people of color. Right. I said, if you want people, uh, you know, diverse backgrounds, cultural and otherwise, to come to your ceremony, they need to see themselves reflected in your marketing, right? So ayahuasca is the same, you know, um, and the, the psychedel psychedelic kind of renaissance. Um, it's definitely shifting, and these are very conscious people. I'm not faulting anybody. Like, they're very aware that there is a racial divide, in quotation marks. Um, but until Black people see more Black people like me, um, like in the Amber Lion video, talking about ayahuasca um, and its potential and that they can actually relate to me as a black person, they're going to assume it's this weird, fringe, taboo, crazy thing that a bunch of, you know, you know schizo white people are doing. Right? So um, I'm not overly concerned with that because I see it shifting so quickly. You know, every time I go to like a MAPS conference or a festival for this matter, um, the diversity seems to me to be growing every single time I go. So the message is getting out and more and more people of color are seeking these uh, medicines and their healing potential. The, the main uh, obstacle to the accessibility at this point is price, you know? Um, yeah, I don't want to encourage or kind of solidify this stereotype that all people of color can't afford an ayahuasca ceremony. But let's get real. Most people of color that I meet can't afford an ayahuasca ceremony <laughs> and certainly not on a regular basis. That's something that has to be kind of worked out as we move along. Yeah. Something that um, came up in terms of 
this idea of, of plant medicine and, um, and different origins and backgrounds. Do you have much of a relationship with Iboga? Have you used Iboga and how, and if so, if you are, what your familiarity level is with it, do you feel like Iboga is a medicine that might become incorporated a little bit more the way ayahuasca has coming as it does from its context in the Congo basin in Africa? Um, no. (laughs) And, Yes, for this reason. Um, one, it's interesting you brought that up because uh, a, a, one of the reasons a lot, of, specifically why people aren't interested in psychedelics or plant medicines in general is because, as you know, um, drugs, in quotation marks, uh, synthetic ones, they have ripped through those communities and torn them apart. And in some cases, systematically so, like intentionally. Um, so in a lot of Black communities, anything outside of pharmaceuticals, anything that has to do with alternate state of consciousness has a taboo attached to it, right? So ayahuasca is just kind of lumped into that. Even though, going back to the aboga, we have a long history, most indigenous cultures do, of working with plant medicines, including psychoactive ones, right? So working with ayahuasca in a lot of ways is kind of bringing most indigenous people back into their heritage, right? It's actually a more, at least historically, accessible and kind of natural way right to achieve what it is that they're looking for in either healing from western medicine or psychological spiritual healing from religion right um that said the challenge with the boga is that it can kill you right? um yeah Did you know that i've done a boga no and i know a lot of people who have and um i want to hear about your experience um i know we're running out of time here but um iboga is so strong that it's not for the faint of heart and very few people have access to it, right? Um, You either have to go to a clinic like in Mexico or, you know, go to a foreign country, most likely Africa. And, you know, it lasts for like two, three days or can, right? And it's really grueling and it's just too much for most people. And unless you're in just the right health and all of that, it's just as likely to cause you problems, right? So I don't think it's a great tool for like the average person if what you're looking for is kind of psycho-spiritual healing or connection, right? That said, it's an amazing medicine. Um, I've only, I haven't done an aboga flood. I just had an experience with aboga. So I, I've definitely felt its power. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it is, it's definitely not an equation to, you know, it's not really analogous to ayahuasca for all the reasons I brought up. Yeah. But having done it, what do you feel about what I just said? I, I I agree with you in all points. You know, I I actually initiated with the Buiti in Gabon, so I did the full. Th- yeah, since since the last time I saw you, I have done that. Um, and yeah, and I was just curious about the context, uh, like the African context of Iboga. But I agree with you in the sense that like it's it's really a a, a high peak to climb. Um, and and I and I feel like my experience of ayahuasca has always been that ayahuasca takes you to the next place. And there's a gentleness in that process. Um, whereas a boga for me was just like took me all the way, whether I wanted to go or not, like just steamrolled all the way through, which is a powerful medicine. You're absolutely right. It's very aggressive and relentless. Um, whereas people cognize and relate to ayahuasca as a mother, you definitely would relate to the boga as the father, right? And, um, yeah, it's something that, as you know, it's like I said, it's like a, a train moving down the tracks. It's relentless. You cannot get away from it. 
um, which for why it's so effective for things like opiate addictions and, you know, alcoholism. Um, it just drops you in and there's no escaping, right? If what you want to do is explore and have a sense of actually kind of cathartically working through your stuff, ayahuasca is way more effective, right? And Agreed. way more effective than DMT by itself. DMT is very similar, amazing, but it, as you know, for most people, not everybody, for most people, DMT will very quickly blast you into some other realm of dimension. You're there for a short period of time and then you land back. It's not always something you can actually integrate and you're not in the space of it long enough to actually, let's say like, oh, there's that thing that happened when I was 12. Ah, that's how it unfolded in all these other events. It's more like, boom, you're in DMT land. There's a bunch of beings, and right at the time you're trying to like figure it all out and land you back in your body. <laughs> Ayahuasca is like that, but over, as you know, over hours, so you can actually cathartically work with it. Yeah, I, I always say that DMT is like a GIF, and then um, ayahuasca is like the whole movie. So you just see a clip of the beings or the healing or whatever, and you're like, oh my God, I'm here, and oh my God, I'm back. And um, to me, there's nothing like ayahuasca. And I've done you know, most of the medicines, and I've gotten a lot of exciting experiences and healing, but there's something that's so narrative about the arc of ayahuasca. And I just feel, I just, I just feel like I'm being taught by a patient, loving, sometimes stern, but for the most part, pretty chill old lady who likes me, which is a pretty nice feeling. Yeah, because DMT is more like a lifting of the veil. Like you're shot out of a rocket, literally, and suddenly you realize there's more to reality than you thought. There might be more dimensions to reality than you thought. And then boom, you're back in your body, right? Ayahuasca is like, I'm not only going to lift the veil, you're going to take a walk, right? And explore. And by the way, while you're here, let's talk about your life and what's been going on, you know? And then kind of gently land you back. You know, it doesn't just like catapult you back into your body. It's a gradual like ease in, orbiting the realms and then coming back. <laughs> For most people, not everybody. So I, I can't believe I haven't had a beautiful long conversation with you in so long because this is such a... Uh, this is such a fun experience. I want to just keep talking to you. There's so many different threads that I want to keep following. Um, but it is a podcast, so it has a time and it has an arc. And I think that we're um, we're in a great place now to kind of land in this core message of gratitude. And um, so this podcast, we're going to come out with it really quickly. So it'll come out before Sunday. And then it'll also be live afterwards. So... Um, on Sunday, you're inviting members of the community to contribute images of gratitude that are then going to become part of the music video of this beautiful song, which is my favorite ceremony song. It's my absolute favorite medicine song, um, which uh, the listener will get to hear at the end of the podcast. And then the video itself comes out in July. Is there a date for that? So two components. So we're releasing the video uh, the official Grateful video is being released on Earth Day. So it's actually Monday. And um, it's being released with something we're doing with uh, Unify. And if people don't know about Unify, they're an amazing group, most accessible through Facebook. And they have uh, like nearly 2 million followers. They do things like synchronized global prayers, all in the service of like peace and, you know, um, evolution of you know, consciousness for humanity. So we teamed up with them and... Because it's medicine music, when I started to get invited by producers to record on music professionally, um, one of the things that uh, 
was quintessential to me and I made a condition is, yeah, I'm definitely willing to do commercial versions of these songs as long as their medicine intention stays intact. And one of the ways we decided to do that through media was let's make sure that everything that we release um, is not just about releasing the song, but about releasing the intention and the medicine of the song. So Grateful, um, it took about a year to record the thing because we were trying to figure out how best to do a really beautiful commercial, quote unquote, version of it that would also still be a medicine song. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, it has a beautiful, although the lyrics are definitely medicine, it lands more in the category of like R&B gospel. Um, so in, after John, Jonathan Hukakian produced the song, um, once we kind of figured out what his, his approach would be, we went into the studio and started the process. Then this whole video idea came along. And I'm like, how are we going to do a video for this? That would be because when people hear it in ceremony, they bring whatever the idea of gratitude means to them, right? And whatever healing that might bring up. I didn't want the video to circumvent that process. So in the end, what we decided to do was, ah, let's just film a video that shows how my community interacts with this idea of gratitude. And it's really around getting together, um, having gatherings, you know, and usually at some point kind of like sharing what it is we're grateful for. So the video, um, which won't give it away, is it, it's one shot, it's one take of us uh, arriving at and attending a grateful party, basically, a grateful ceremony. And uh, the rest of people will get to see on Earth Day. So when I contacted Unify, I had this idea. I go, let's do a grateful challenge. All right, we're going to release the official video, but let's invite people all over the world to record their own videos of either them having a grateful party, having a grateful ceremony, sharing just as a selfie video what they're grateful for, or just holding up pictures of things that they're grateful for. And then we're going to collect all of those and then make one big, we're calling a super grateful video blast. All of those images and videos are going to be edited by our editor, Pavel, into one video to the same song that just shows people being grateful. Right? Ah, so there's, so there's a, so there's a video of a grateful party and it's coming out on Monday, not Sunday, I was incorrect, on Monday. And you're encouraging your community and, and, brought, and the community more broadly to participate and give their experiences of gratitude. And then that's going to come out later as a second video. That's what will come out in July. Yeah. The, we decided the grateful video, the official video for the song is kind of an invitation and um, it's kind of an example. We're, we're basically, literally, as I mentioned, it literally was a birthday. It was my birthday that we shot it. And it was uh, just a gratitude party. And we just have it sequenced in a way that it happens in one take and fits the duration of the song. We wanted it to be an example with people about things that they could do, basically. Yeah, so that's the official grateful video. And then in July, with all these submissions that come in, and they've already started, by the way, I've got quite a few, um, they'll all be edited into one yeah, we're calling it the super grateful video. And that's just showing grateful as a prayer. And the last thing I'll say about that, the reason why we're doing that is there is this amazing research from the Institute of Heart Math. And uh, shortening that really dramatically in layman's terms, their research and other research seems to indicate that our feelings of like love and gratitude and compassion um, get encoded into our electromagnetic field, what I think newish people are calling the aura. And it turns out that electromagnetic field, which is like a torus around our body, is in communication with everybody else's electromagnetic field and with the electromagnetic field of the planet itself. And in these synchronized global prayers, like Unify has done, 
um, they have shown that crime in certain areas has gone down dramatically during the time of the prayer, right? So we had this idea, it's like, let's get people for a month or two all on fire between now and July, talking about gratitude, sharing what they're grateful for, just moving as many people as we can for a concentrated period of time into the field and frequency of gratitude, right? So they were literally sending out this prayer to the planet. That's why the uh, campaign says, share your gratitude with the world. We mean it literally. <laughs> wow. Well, we are going to have in the show notes links to be able to do that. Um, so we, Tony and I, want you to share your gratitude. Um, and we are going to end the podcast today with this beautiful song, Grateful, which I've been teasing at the entire podcast by saying it's my favorite medicine song. It really is. It's so meaningful to me, and it also represents it also represents to me, you know, our friendship and my admiration of you, Tony. I I really admire you. I have from the moment I met you, and um, I'm so thrilled to get you on the podcast. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and your message with the world. I am delighted. And the last thing I would say is, you know, when you told me about your podcast and you told me the title was "Life Is a Festival," you know. It was a no-brainer because I knew exactly what you meant by that. And I knew that I related to it. And everything we've been talking about fits so perfectly into that. So, yeah, uh, it's mutual. And I'm really you know, delighted with the opportunity to share with you and to be able to catch up and drop in like this. I know, right? That's one of the great things about the podcast. It's just like having a phone call with an old friend. So here we go. This is Grateful. For the moonlight falling through the trees and for this ground beneath our knees for the memories of love we have known forever grateful and for the pain for the pain and all we have lost And for the sorrows we have caused Still we whisper grateful So very grateful To have loved at all Forever grateful, yes. Forever grateful, yes. To hear the birds at dawn. This singing grateful. So very grateful. Forever grateful, yes. I am forever grateful to hear the angel song. 
How'd you think the podcast went? Oh, wow. I love the podcast. Um, Interesting enough, as we were just sharing, the main reason I love it is um, it's literally, in this case, uh, two people, two friends who haven't connected in a while, who share a lot of the same passions and values, and just being able to converse and catch up in a casual way that also is for other people to listen to and to participate in. It's, yeah, it's one of the things I most love. When we get to use technology, right, as a platform for connecting, which you know I'm all about. The other thing is many years ago, I was at a a talk in Santa Barbara, at UC Santa Barbara, and Amy Goodman was speaking. And she was laying out this kind of, you know, classic state of the world devastation talk, right? Um, 
And at the end, this woman said, wow, thank you for sharing all of that. But now I'm wondering, like, what can we do? Like, what do you suggest? And Amy, without missing a beat, said, take back the media. And she went on to say, I'm not just talking about the mainstream media. That's obvious. Because anytime you have a platform where people are listening to you, right, and you have the ability to share, she goes, you become media. So use that media, right? And uh, that's what I love about the podcast. You know, it's people being able to listen into and participate in conversations that they might not otherwise. In this case, just you and I, you know, and I'm grateful, literally, <laughs> forever grateful, yeah, to have an opportunity to share things that are important uh, to me and to us with other people that might be of interest. Wow. Well, I can tell you, for me, it was a great podcast because while it was happening, I was like, this is so good. We we need more time. Like there's all these threads I want to talk about. There's there's like how would how would you approach your first ceremony? And there's all these questions of like, well, what about the ayahuasca vine? Is it getting depleted? And like all of these questions I want to ask. So I think that we're gonna we're gonna run this podcast and you will definitely be a return guest once I have returned guests. And next time in person. Yeah, that would be great. And yeah, the idea of just ayahuasca today, like what ayahuasca, its roots, where it is now, how it got there, how, what's effective, what's not, all of those things are conversations that I'm in all the time. And because so many people are asking, I thought, yeah, for sure, we haven't talked about that enough. So I'm happy to do that at some point. Well, you have a standing invitation for another amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate you. Uh, you too. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks again. <laughs>